the Oakland A's appear to be leaving for Las Vegas. It's Friday, April 21st. I'm senior writer Owen Poindexter, and this is Front Office Sports Today. So we've had some major news in baseball and some medium major news as well. Here to help me process it and think it all through is former Marlins president and host of Nothing Personal with David Sampson. David Sampson. How are you? I usually say doing good. I'm I'm doing I'm not sure right now because I'm still trying to get my head around this A's news. So, of course, the Oakland A's um, have agreed to purchase land in Las Vegas to build a stadium there. They say, you know, they could have it ready by 2027, which is a long ways away. Um, Some ambiguity as to where they might play in 25 and 26. Um, But let me get your your first take on this. Um, First of all, are the A's moving to Vegas? I would say it's not a done deal by any stretch. And you've even seen the president of the A's walk it back a little bit because we all got the news overnight and it was the A's are gone to Vegas and that's not accurate. The A's have not yet gotten public financing and they need it. And the legislature is meeting right now in Las Vegas. They have 60 days further to go in their session and they've got to figure out how to put a deal together because while they say it's privately funded, that's not exactly accurate. They do need public money and to do it, they have to have votes both in the state and actually in the city. So what they said really was, Oakland, if you don't get back to the table and start giving in on a few of the issues we have left, like affordable housing and certain issues with taxes, guess what? We have a viable alternative. But the truth is they've always had the viable alternative, but baseball would much prefer the team to stay in Oakland. John Fisher would prefer the team to stay in Oakland. So it is not over yet. Yeah, so we we spoke recently and... You know, that, that's always been my take is like they're acting like a team, an organization that wants to be in Oakland. Yes, they've got Vegas as, you know, the the leverage play. Um, and so uh, but but, you know, they've agreed to purchase this land. Um, that's obviously incredibly significant. They are now switching their language around from parallel paths to we're pursuing Vegas. Oakland has, they say, cut off negotiations with the team, but you still see at least some sliver of hope for, for let Oakland. Me, let me interrupt you and take one minute to do some counting in my head. And three, four, five. I think seven times I announced that we were done negotiating with Miami. I think six times Miami announced they were done negotiating with us. And I think we held press conferences and released statements about all the places we were going to move. So all of this is what I would call standard operating procedure. Is there a chance the A's move to Vegas? Yeah, but here's the problem. They've got to get a deal done somewhere by January of 2024, not because their lease runs out in the Coliseum, not because there's possums running around, not because they want to hurry up and get to Vegas, but because in the collective bargaining agreement, if they don't have a stadium deal done by then, they lose their revenue sharing. That's a big deal. So they're going to get a deal done somewhere. And the way these deals get done, and I've done them, you have to get right to the edge where you're hanging over the abyss and you're holding on by your fingernails before you get a manicure. You're slipping off. There's no net. And then a deal happens. And that's going to happen either in Oakland or Vegas, by the way. So we're, we're only in the 
I'd say we're in the middle of the third quarter, and that's it. All right. Well, um, this is heartening my mood a, a little bit here. With Oakland, the biggest sticking point, at least that Dave Caval, the Oakland A's president, was was bringing up over and over again that I could tell, um, in addition to the housing issue, was um, the infrastructure money. So the deal was basically the A's spend... $12 billion, and who knows if that would end up being the number, if it would be $8 billion or $20 billion. It felt like someone said $12 billion at some point, and that, that was the number. What's a billion between friends? Right, exactly. So they uh, they developed the stadium, housing, parks, all this stuff, uh, retail um, in Oakland. And Oakland spends something like four to $500 million-ish on infrastructure to support that development. And I kept thinking like, okay, you're willing to spend 12, but you're haggling over the last couple hundred million. I think a deal's going to get done here because yeah, if, if it's, you know, if you're willing to spend 12 billion, you know, what's another 200 million or what's another, like, we can figure some of this out later. Um, how significant is that infrastructure funding? It's very. So let's talk about when you want to spend your own money. And we had the same issue in Miami. You do not want to be in charge of public infrastructure. You don't want to be in charge of overruns for public infrastructure because you're not controlling the construction of the public infrastructure. That's done by the government. And our rule was we'll cover overruns as long as we have complete control over process. So a lot of the arguments that happen is that you have politicians who get out ahead of a deal and say there's no public money. This is fully privately funded. You have owners who go get out ahead and say, hey, I'm doing it all myself, but both sides are not being truthful. All these deals have public money in them. Some of them disguise it as public infrastructure. Some disguise it like in New York as pilot payments, which are payments in lieu of taxes, which is still money that is actually from the public that could go to the public that's going to the project. And by the way, it's happening in Vegas. They're talking about not creating any new taxes, but creating a new tax district and the taxes within that district go to the project. So that's the same as tax money going to the project. Right. So it really is how you frame it. There's a lot of PR involved. And one of the steps in the PR battle is the, we're done with you. We're moving the team. We're not negotiating with you anymore. All of that is done to get people worked up like you. You're getting worked up as a fan, as someone who's local, your pulse is racing, you're sweating a little bit. And that is when all of the magic actually happens. Part of that's because I'm over-caffeinated, but yes, you're <laughs> accurate. All those things are true. Um, um, all right. Well, yeah, we shall see. This is, you know, obviously, you know, an evolving situation. Uh, but yeah, I guess now the next step is, do they get the deal done in, in the Nevada state legislature, you know, maybe with the city of Vegas itself? So we'll be keeping an eye on that. While we got you, we've got plenty of other news uh, in the baseball world and some in the sports world. Um, so we also learned recently there's a Washington Post report that uh, Ted Leonsis, mm -hmm. owner of the Washington Wizards, Washington Capitals, uh, other properties in that area, bid over $2 billion for the Washington Nationals. Now, they, of course, have this bizarro situation where they don't own their own media rights. The Orioles get most of the money from that. Um, so it feels like Leonsis was always the front runner, but also they have to figure something out with this. 
how how like stuck in limbo are the Nationals with this, and how could they possibly get out? So the way that this team gets sold, and make no mistake, the Nationals will be sold, is that they've got to find a way to figure out the Masson situation. They're fighting with the Orioles now over rights fees from 10 years ago. A lot of money was put in escrow. That's what all the recent lawsuits have been about. The recent hearings in front of judges have been about what do we do with this escrow money? What are the rights fees for the nationals? But that's only for the first five-year period. They haven't even litigated the second five-year period. And so the reason why this is so important is that when you're negotiating to sell your team, who gets the money once the Masson deal is figured out and there's a whole lot of money paid to the nationals? Does it go to the seller? Does the buyer get to keep it? Do you bake that into the purchase price before you know how to value it? And so right now, there's not a meeting of the minds between any of the buyers or the seller in terms of the value of the team. Secondly, where is the TV world going? How do you do projections when you don't know what your TV revenue is? Because they're not locked into a mass and deal at an amount right now. And Masson is nowhere near the value that it was. And Ted Leonis, is a great example. He bought into a local RSN in Washington. The thought was to combine everything and have this behemoth network. The problem is all these networks are down in value. So what Ted is trying to figure out is what revenue will the team have? What revenue will the network have? And how do I figure out then what to pay for the content, which is the Nationals? And let's stick with um, the uncertain future of baseball local media. So uh, as listeners of this podcast know, the Diamond Sports Group filed for bankruptcy. Um, they hold rights to 19 MLB teams, their local rights. And some of these teams are not getting paid. And now MLB might be cutting off their um uh, their media agreements with them. The latest one is the Cincinnati Reds. Looks like they could be uh, they they uh, could be cutting things off with Diamond. The other ones are the San Diego Padres, Cleveland Guardians, and Arizona Diamondbacks. Uh, how how much of a problem is it for these teams? And what do you think happens next? Well, well, what's going on with Diamond is they're in the middle of a reorganization. When you file Chapter 11, basically what you're saying to, the, to your creditors is that we're going to figure out how to pay you back and right the ship. And we're looking at all of our contracts and all of our obligations. And we're going to decide which we can fulfill and which we can't. When teams sign a rights deal with Diamond, they are basically under contract to receive X dollars per year for Y number of years. Within the reorganization under chapter 11, there is a scenario where rights fees are not paid, contractual obligations are not met, which enables the other party, in this case, the Reds, to say, you have violated the terms of the contract. One of the remedies, if you don't pay us, is that we can make this contract null and void. And if we do that, then we retain and take back our rights, and then we get to sell them to someone else. What baseball has said is, we'll take it from you, Cincinnati. We'll make sure all the games are on. We're going to figure out a streaming situation nationally. We may sell a package with as many teams as we can get, but add it all up, and it doesn't equal the rights fee that was promised to the Reds under the original contract. But that original deal is non-existent truthfully. So if Diamond chooses not to pay and the contract goes away, these teams will not be able to refill the bucket 
100% immediately. And that's something that baseball is going to have to deal with because if you project to have a certain amount of revenue and you don't have it, that is going to flow all the way down to your payroll. So the union and the league is highly incentivized to make these teams whole. Yeah. And I feel like we're going to look back on this and the the 90s and the early 2000s are going to feel like the boom time when local media was, there's just money flowing everywhere. And you know some of the owners kept it, some of the owners spent it on their teams, but things are going to change and maybe that bucket will get filled back up. But I think it's going to take a long, long time. All right, David Sampson, thanks so much for joining us. Very insightful. Oh, my pleasure. Have a great day. Up next, I spoke to Ryan Garcia. He is a 24-year-old boxer who has captured the attention of both the boxing world and has a career that has become bigger than just his fights and his record. Tomorrow, he has the biggest fight of his life against Gervonta Tank Davis. We spoke about what that's going to mean for him and much more. We'll have that conversation right after this. Here's what's trending now. You can defer payments of a full NetSuite implementation for six months. 33,000 companies have already upgraded to NetSuite, gaining visibility and control over their financials, inventory, HR, e-commerce, and more. Everything they need to reduce manual processes, boost efficiency, build forecasts, and increase productivity. Whether your business generates millions or hundreds of millions of dollars, take advantage of this special financing offer of no payments or interest for six months at netsuite.com frontoffice. That's netsuite.com slash front office. All right. I am joined now by boxer Ryan Garcia. Welcome, Ryan. How are you doing? Doing great. So let's start at the beginning here. Um, how did you get into boxing? I was, I got into boxing because my uncle, uh, he, uh, he introduced me to boxing after I finished uh, one season of Little League. I was about six, seven years old, and uh, I just didn't like the team aspect of, uh, of baseball. And I asked him, do you know any sports that are one-on-one? And he showed me boxing, and I kind of I, – I didn't even really care what it really truly was. I just wanted to do it because of the fact that it was one-on-one. You, you've got this major fight coming up against Gervonta Tank Davis. Um I've heard this called the biggest fight of your career. Maybe you've said that. What makes this, if it is the biggest fight of your career, what makes it that? I mean, you, you guys just look around. It's so clear, you know. I mean, we're fighting at MGM Grand. You know, we're actually fighting at T-Mobile, but we're in Vegas, headlining Vegas, you know. Right. If you looked at any of the fights in the past history of boxing, the biggest fights have been in Vegas. So if this is not a clear indication that this is the biggest fight of my life, I mean, I don't think anybody's really looking too hard. Yeah. Um, you've been working with GMC on a docu-series, Road to the Ring. Um, was it awkward at any point to, like, you know, have, have a camera on you? Did you feel like you could act natural, even though, in some sense, people are watching in a way they weren't before? That's always just something to balance, you know. Uh, subconsciously, you know, there's a camera in front of you. So sometimes you find yourself saying what you think people want to hear. So I kind of always try to be aware of it and speak from my heart, speak the truth. Uh, but it does get tough. It's a challenge to always speak authentically when there's a camera down your face, but I try my best. Honestly, that's all I could do. And is that something that you feel has been an ongoing, you know, part of your life, maybe a challenge uh, because, you know, 
your ability to make money off what you do comes from your fame, your notoriety, even things like your social media following. Um, how, how much do you consciously think about your brand and build your brand? You just got to be aware every step of the way on what you're projecting yourself uh, and how you want to be, I guess, in front of the world. But, you know, this is, this is not even worrisome at all. You know, there's so much more harder things people are going through life than, you know, me worrying about, you know, my post and all that. You know, I just look it for what it is and accept it. And it's truly a blessing in my life. You know, there's kids out there that are really struggling. You know, a YouTube video that I'm struggling what to post uh, does not even uh, come close to the real struggles of the world. So that's how I see it. That's my perspective of life. You know, I, I go in there and I control what I can control and what I can't control, I don't really pay attention to. So it's pretty much just a realization of reality. Yeah. And, and how do you want to see your your career and your, your life evolve, you know, as you, I mean, you're getting bigger, you're, you're growing in stature, but but also just like, is boxing um, going to be, is it all you're thinking about right now in terms of what you want to do or... Um, or, or are you already thinking like, you know, other directions that your life could take you? What I'm doing is bigger than boxing. I see boxing as just a tool, just a vessel in what, how I express myself and who I am. And it gives me a way to really impact people in such a positive way. And that's really what I'm chasing deep down inside me. And that's what keeps me boxing because I know that's always been a part of my life. And it's what's given me the platform. And I want to travel the world and impact people and speak truth and motivate them, touch people. Every, everywhere I move, every, every uh, place I walk, I want to touch people. So that's, that's how I want to live my life. And maybe along those lines, am I right in thinking that uh, you took a mental health break at one point from boxing? Yes, I absolutely uh, needed to. I had no choice. You know, I was beaten to my knees. I, was, I suffered through a lot during those moments. Uh, and I was tested, tested in, in a lot of ways. And through that whole journey, I evolved as a man and I came to a place of peace. And through that, I want to spread what I learned to people. So if they're going through anxiety, depression, all the things I went through, you know, mental warfare, if I have one, you know, piece of advice that may shortcut them to the peace I feel now, man, I mean, how, how beautiful is that? So um, yeah, that's that's what I take out of what I went through. Yeah, yeah, it's something I, I've spoken to other people about that. I mean, being a professional athlete, there are some unique pressures on you. Um, and some people, I think, do feel like they have to just keep pushing and show a strong face and, and not take breaks. Um, so, yeah, I think just the act of taking a break is itself somewhat profound. Exactly. I mean, it's actually more courageous to listen to yourself i mean people you sometimes you find yourself not taking a break because you want to show people you're tough but that's not that, that you're now you're now you're acting for everyone else you're always look, thinking on what's the right thing to say to everybody and you're not living the truth so it really brings you into perception of you know who you really are you know and for me you know, I, I'm not here to act tough. I'm, I'm here to be tough. 
<laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, I'm not here to, you know, show people, yo, I'm this big, bad dude. I'm just going to be him. That's my mentality, and that's what I've definitely learned through this whole journey. It's like you find yourself in front of all these cameras and all these people saying things that you think they want to hear, or you, you're acting out of character because of, for them, it's like, no, I'm not thinking about the best thing to say. I'm thinking about the truth. That's it. That's all I care about. Everything else is just blah, blah, blah. <laughs> uh, last question. Big fights on Saturday night. What should we be watching out for? If you're hungry, I advise you to eat before the fight. If you're tired, take a nap before the fight. If you have to go to the bathroom during the fight, hold it until the fight's over because in the blink of an eye, it's going to be finished. Done. Out, and we're all going to be celebrating. It's going to be a great time. All right. Very cool. Ryan Garcia, thanks so much for joining us on the show. You brother. That's it for today. Hug an A's fan if you see one. I promise they're out there. We have some fantastic NBA and NHL action coming up this weekend. So many good storylines right now. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend, and we will see you Monday.